This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Boom, we're on, and today's guest, we've got David Packhouse. How are you, David? I'm doing good. Thank you, James. Thanks for coming on the show. Like, they made a blockbuster film about you, yeah. War Dogs. Like, great film. Like, very good film. Very funny as well, especially anything with Jonah Hill in it. He's going to kind of bring some action to it. But you're not just, I don't know, is that a gun runner or whatever they call you, but you're also an inventor. You're a very intelligent man, entrepreneur. Thank You've got you. a lot of great attributes as well which we'll touch on but first and foremost brother how's life life is great i really have no complaints um i i'm in a much better uh place in life than i uh was in during the uh the story where the film takes place that's for sure before we get into everything david i always like to go back to the start of my guests get a bit understanding about you where you grew up and how it all began so um well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, my family is uh, Orthodox Jews, so my dad was a rabbi, so uh, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish religious uh, household and um, lived in Israel until I was eight years old, so I grew up speaking Hebrew, but my parents are American, and then we moved to, uh, so I spoke English at home, the Hebrew in school, and then we moved to Miami uh, for my dad's work. And um, uh, lived in Miami and, uh, until I was eight, 18, and then went back to Israel for two years to study, uh, came back to Florida, went to University of Florida, uh, and then back to Miami and been here ever since. How was it, the transition from Israel to Miami? Like, is, is that totally night and day? Like, uh, Miami's quite a part, party place, beach, sun, girls. Yeah. I'd imagine Israel quite, quite strict. Like, what was yeah. that transition like for it's, you? It's uh, definitely very different, uh, Miami. The interesting thing, though, is that um, uh, growing up in an Orthodox Jewish home, uh, even though we, I was living right next to South Beach, which is the... Um, one of the centers of the party areas of Miami, um, 
I we were very isolated. So I only really spoke to other Orthodox Jews. I went to you know private Jewish school. Uh, so I didn't really interact with uh, the general Miami culture as it's uh, considered. But uh, as I grew older and got into my late teens, uh, that uh, uh, you know I started getting more into that lifestyle, much to my parents' uh, uh, you know great dismay. What did your dad do, David? My dad, my dad was a uh, he was a rabbi, so he's a member of the clergy. That's yeah. mad, isn't it, though, from Israel then to Miami. Yeah. That, it's amazing how where you grew up in life, it kind of it sets out your path yeah. of what could possibly be. Yeah. Like, what were you like at school? Were you entrepreneurial ship skills in there, or were you a kind of just loner? Like, where were you at school? Uh, so I was, um, I went to a, an Orthodox Jewish school, but um, I was a pretty good student. Uh, other than the uh, religious studies, I never liked the religious studies that much. I always found it, them to be pretty boring. Uh, learning a lot of Talmud. I don't know if your your uh, listeners know what that is, but it's a uh, the Talmud is um, kind of like a, a a very very detailed law text from around uh, the year five hundred, and it's all about uh, uh, arguments about uh, the legalities of of the things that people faced at the time, like if your cow gores your neighbor's cow, you know, who's responsible for the uh, for the damages, you know, how high was your fence, uh, and things of that nature um, that they make Orthodox Jews learn. And um, it was something that I didn't find particularly interesting, but it did train me um, to uh, sit down and spend hours and hours at very detailed um, uh very intellectually challenging uh, tasks, and that definitely gave me a, a pretty good training for later on in life. And it came in handy uh, when we were doing government contracts because it's actually a very similar process to that. So it, it did translate directly into that. Did you get caught smoking weed? And <laughs> yes, uh, parents shipped you back. Yeah. So in 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 my later teen years, I started smoking weed with my friends. I started playing guitar, getting into the whole music culture. And uh, to to people in that culture, smoking weed is pretty much the same thing as doing heroin. So they thought I was you know, going to be a drunk addict on the street because I was smoking weed. And they you know, freaked out and, and decided to send me to a drug rehabilitation program. Uh, you know, because they were worried that, uh, you know, I'd become an addict and become homeless because I was smoking mm -hmm. weed. Yeah. So very strict parents. Yeah, very strict parents. I'm, I'm one of nine children. Shit, man. Like, yeah. That's a lot to kind of balance out. Like, it's mad though that like, even though you probably thought you were getting a hard time at the start, they're probably only wanting the best intentions for oh, you. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that and I, don't hold anything against them. Um, I I know that they wanted the best uh, for me. Uh, uh, as as I would imagine, the vast majority of parents do. Uh, they were just extremely religious, and they thought that the best thing for me was for me to be extremely religious. And I didn't think that. <laughs> I didn't share that uh, those values. Yeah, so uh, coming from a strict family, Jewish kid, smoked a bit of weed, yeah. to then becoming one of the biggest arms dealers in America. Yeah. Like, 
it's some it's some steps to go because you first started off as a masseuse. Is that correct? That yes. was in the film. Like, yes. How accurate is that? Because you know films, especially Hollywood, are yeah, a lot of it's fiction as well. Like, how true is that that was in the film? Yeah. So uh, the film, I would say, in general, was about seventy uh, percent accurate. That's that's the number I would put on it. It's like mostly accurate, but there's big chunks of it that are not. Um, but uh, as far as the massage therapist uh, thing, that is that is accurate. I did become a massage therapist, and uh, when I was twenty years old, uh, I was uh, at the time I was studying chemistry in college, and I realized that I needed to get a job to support myself in college. I wasn't going to be able to uh, just live off my parents, so um, I was looking around for you know what job I could get and I realized that all my friends worked in these minimum wage jobs you know like in McDonald's or some fast food places and they were making like you know like six seven dollars an hour at the best and uh I had got previously I had been in a car crash in a vehicle accident and uh I had gotten whiplash so I had some uh, issues with my neck and I had gotten massage therapy to help with that and I realized and it really helped me the massage therapy so I realized that uh, massage therapists make like 60 to 100 dollars an hour just for one hour so if I could learn that I could you know number one I could learn how to fix myself which was very uh, you know useful um, but also I could make in one hour what uh, what my friends were working an entire day to make so i could do one hour of massage and i'd be done for the day um and so and of course the ladies love a man who can give a good massage so that didn't hurt uh, <laughs> but, uh <laughs> yeah I, I would have been doing that job as well mate yeah. especially in miami because all the girls are top dollar yeah absolutely they they really are so i went to um i went to massage school uh in in Florida, you have to go to uh, school and get licensed to do massage therapy. And so it was only like a six-month program, so not very long. I uh, went to massage school and uh, got licensed and was working as a massage therapist. Uh, I also had a few other side uh, gigs, side businesses. I've always been very entrepreneurial. Um, so at the time, I was uh, also importing uh, electronics, uh, SD cards from China. I was importing... Uh, uh, bed sheets and linens. That part is in the movie uh, from uh, from Pakistan. Uh, though in the movie, they show me uh, going like from like to an elder care facility and and trying to sell sheets that I bed sheets that I bought to that person. That's not how I was doing the business. I was actually just being a broker, so I wouldn't buy the bed sheets or the towels before I already had a buyer. Um, so I was just brokering. I would never actually take possession of that. Uh, I would just mm -hmm. buy it from the manufacturer and sell it to a hospital or to a elder care facility. See, so doing those jobs, multiple jobs, did that then become easier? Being an arms dealer, does it? Are these kind of similar? Same as any drug dealer I know, they could put their mind into anything because they've all they've got they've got the skills there. Let's see, because you had so many businesses, does it then become easier? Even though people think, oh, it's guns, blah blah blah, but it's still a product. But does that become easier for you because you'd already had the skills? Yeah, so it's actually very similar, more or less the same skills. Um, and that's that's when I met up with my uh, uh, with Ephraim De Baroli, who became my partner in the arms business. Um, he was already in the arms business for about it for uh, about a year before I joined him and when we met 
we he came back from um, uh, from. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. L.A., he, we grew up together. So Ephraim DiBaroli and I grew up together in Miami. And uh, we knew each other from synagogue. His parents were all Jewish. Went to the same synagogue that my parents went to. And uh, then when he was 16, he got caught smoking weed as well. And it, his parents decided to send him over to L.A. to work for his uncle. Uh, his uncle owned a big pawn shop. And uh, one of the things that pawn shops sell is is guns. Um, and he and his uncle was also selling to the local police, to the state police. And uh, and so he, the way the government buys things is they when they want to buy anything, they have to put it on their website and say we want to buy you know a hundred guns. And then everyone submits their bid, gives them their best price, and then the government decides who is the best price, uh, who's going to deliver on time, who's reliable, who's going to give them good quality you know, cheapest price and, uh, and make a contract award. And then the, the one person who gets the award gets to deliver the products. So Ephraim learned how to do that from his uncle. Then after about two years, came back to Miami. Uh, he had a falling out with his uncle. They both claimed the other screwed him, you know, the other. And, uh, and when he came back to Miami, he started his own company called AEY Inc., which is, you know, what made it into the movie. And after about a year, he was doing really well. He was selling to the federal government. This was in 2004. So right when uh, the Iraq war uh, had gotten started and uh, uh, the United States had invaded Iraq and we're trying to build up the Iraqi government to into a de- democratic government. Um, and part of that, they had to supply the police forces and the armed forces. And so they put out all these contracts for weapons and ammunition, other equipment. And Ephraim was doing very well in supplying them. And then uh, he was based out of Miami. And then we met each other at a mutual friend's house. And he asked me what I was doing. And I told him about the uh, bed sheets and about the um, about importing SD cards, electronics from China. And he told me, hey, you know, that's actually very similar to what I'm doing. Um, I look international for internationally for suppliers. I try to get the best price. I have to work out logistics of how to get the goods to the to the customer, um, and you know, work on the uh, on the licensing and 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 the financing and everything like that. And uh, we are pretty much doing the same thing. Uh, so, but I bet I'm making way more money than you. So why don't you come and join me and we can make a lot more money together. And uh, so I, I told him, well, in that case, if you're telling me you're making a lot more money than me, uh, how much money are you making? And uh, he told me, he's like, I'm going to tell you, but, uh, but only to inspire you. I'm not, not because I'm bragging. So he opens up his laptop and he logs into his his bank account and he shows that he has $1.8 million in the bank. And he was only 18 years old at the time. And I knew his parents hadn't given him that money. So he had made that money in about a year. Uh, it blew me away. And I was like, wow, this guy knows how to 
do a business very well. I wasn't doing badly in my businesses, but I wasn't making millions. So I said, okay, I'm in. And that's how I got started with the arms business. Because Ephraim, he was a proper mad bastard. Like, did they not have to cut a lot of water him down a lot in the film because then people wouldn't actually believe he was real? Yeah, that is actually true. So in, it's funny because when people watch the movie, they ask me, oh, was Ephraim really like that? Was he that crazy, etc." And the truth is, is that he actually was much crazier in real life than he was in the film. Um, but they had to, they had to, you know, uh, cut down on his craziness because it just wasn't believable. The, uh, the screenwriter, Stephen Chin, who wrote the screenplay for the War Dogs film, told me that, uh, they, they made a conscious effort to tone down Ephraim's character, uh, and to make him more likable because, uh, then they said if they made him the way he was, people wouldn't want to spend like an hour and a half in the theater with him, so to speak. See, it was a, is it like the black market or was it legal? Was everything above board? Like, how, what's the process? Because I know you can, guns, you can buy guns in America. So how does it work? How, what's the process for it? So uh, all the business we were doing was 100% uh, legal until it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but um, in the beginning, it was 100% legal. And we were just selling to the U.S. government, directly to the federal government. And... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you could. There's the gun laws in the United States are very lax, as as everyone knows. Uh, you don't even need a license to own a gun here. It's it's easier to own a gun in the United States than it is to drive a car, um, and it's not that hard to drive cars. You know, to get a license to drive a car, then it's also extremely easy to get that a driver's license here. But um, uh, uh, the, what we were doing was we were selling uh, to the federal government, to the uh, to the United States um, government. So we were selling to different agencies. We were selling to the U.S. Army. We were also selling to the State Department, some to the Air Force. Um, and we were bidding on contracts. So as I mentioned before, when we would see something that we would want to deliver, uh, which we thought we had could get a good supply, we would uh, get uh, sources for that and get the best price and work out the logistics and then submit our bid to the government. It's all on uh, their website, which anyone can go on. It's uh, sam.gov, uh, sam.gov, and you can search in there. They buy everything. I mean, the United States government is the single biggest buyer in the world. Um, they, you know, the defense budget alone is between 800 and $900 billion every year. And that's just the defense budget. That's not the whole federal budget. So the United States government buys a massive amount of everything, not just weapons, but everything. And if you have a specialty of, uh, of any item that you think you can be competitive in, you can type in on the website and uh, you, know, you can type in shoes or socks or food or air conditioners or anything at all, fuel, guns. And, uh, and you'll see all those, uh, all the federal agencies that are looking to buy these particular items. And then it's a competition and you, everyone has to submit their best price and the government will award best on the best, uh, based on the best value, so to speak. And the best value isn't necessarily the best price all the time, uh, depending on the contract. Sometimes they take into account other factors. So besides the price, so they'll take into account uh, when the the projected delivery date is. So if if they need something 
very quickly. They may be willing to pay a higher price if you could deliver it sooner. Or if it's a very important uh, uh, contract, then they may put more emphasis on reliability. So then they will only give it to uh, award the contract to someone who has a long history of delivering this type of item. So usually the way they work is if the contract is under $100,000, uh, it's considered a small contract. And then they won't even look at your background that much. As long as you qualify, you're registered with the government, uh, which isn't difficult to do. But um, then you don't really need to prove that you are that you have a history of of um, of delivering this type of item. Uh, but if it's above a hundred thousand dollars, then you need to submit what they call past performance, which is proof that you have done uh, business with these types of items in the past. So that you can prove that you are uh, that you have the capability of delivering this. So what people usually do is they'll get a bunch of these small contracts under hundred thousand dollars and build up their reputation, and then they can go for bigger contracts using those smaller contracts as their past performance proof that they can deliver these things. What are you thinking when? Ephraim's telling you about the government, the bike guns. Like for anybody who's never seen the film or doesn't know, like it's kind of you would think that was kind of unbelievable that the government actually put out a list, like a shopping list, for other people to get a product, get the cheapest and best. Like what are you thinking when you first heard all that? Are you thinking, nah, that can't. That's got to be illegal. It can't be right. Like. Or did you know? Think or did you already know about it? I didn't know anything about the uh, federal government contracting before I got into it. Um, yeah, I had no idea how the government bought what they wanted to buy. But it, when I thought about it, it makes sense because the government, if they want to get the best price, um, they the best way to get the best price is to have a competition. And uh, every it's kind of like a reverse eBay. Uh, where you know on eBay you bid up the price to uh, buy something with the government, uh, you bid down the they bid down the price to try to get the best price. So it makes sense that they are doing this. And uh, in a democracy, in an open uh, society, uh, ideally, it's best that that the citizens know what the government is spending their tax dollars on. So in the United States, it's actually a law that the government needs to post publicly all the things that they are buying. There are very large exceptions to this law, such as the CIA doesn't have to tell everyone they have a certain budget, which is quite large, uh, which they call the black budget, which they don't need to tell anyone what they are uh, spending that money on. The Pentagon also has a, a certain amount of black budget. And those things, that budget goes into uh, secret operations, uh, you know, like intelligence gathering and, and uh, uh, secret uh, missions, you know, like special forces kind of stuff that they're doing that they don't want to, that they would consider a national security risk to inform the public about. So there is a certain amount of the budget that they don't need to tell the, the public what they're spending on, but most of the budget needs to be publicly um, uh specified what they are spending the money on and uh by so even when they're buying something like for example that it's not going to be a competition like for example when they buy um fighter jets right you know they're buying the f-35 fighter jets from lockheed martin for example uh, lockheed martin's the only company that makes that fighter jet so there's no competition there right but they still publish it on the the sam.gov website 
because that's uh, that's the law. They need to, to inform the public what they're spending money on. Now, for those kind of contracts, because it's not a competition, it's uh, what they call a sole source contract, meaning only one source can bid on it. They still publish it publicly. Um, and But what they do there is they'll do what's called a cost plus contract, meaning that the that Lockheed Martin tells the government it costs us, you know, I don't know, $100 million to make this jet. I'm just making that number up. I don't know off the top of my head what an F-35 costs. But, um, uh, you know, if it costs $100 million, then the Lockheed Martin is allowed to put a certain negotiated percentage as a profit margin, usually like 1.5% or something like that. And so they'll charge the government $101.5 million for that jet. They'll you know, take that million and a half as profit. So, of course, that sole source contracts have the, the problem that uh, uh, this gives the companies incentive to make things as expensive as possible. Because the more expensive something is, then the higher, the more money that set percentage is, and which is why government programs are famous for uh, having very large cost overruns. And you see this all over the government, not just with defense, but also uh, with NASA. The SLS rocket program is extremely over budget. The James Webb telescope was extremely over budget. All these uh, really big projects where they have uh, companies working on a cost plus basis tend to go very, very over budget because it's not competitive. How many competitors would you have, David? Like, would you know your competitors and what they're bidding? Like, how does it work? Is there a lot of you or only very few? So they would never tell us how many people are bidding on the contract. It's in fact illegal for them to do that because that would, you know, uh, give us information that we could use to uh, increase our profit margins at the government's expense. So they would never tell us how many people were bidding or who was bidding. Um, we did know that I think I think after in certain contracts, especially the big ones, they would sometimes announce after the award was made how many people bid on the contract. So you wouldn't know beforehand, but you'd know afterwards. So I. Th think, if I recall correctly, I think for the big contract that uh, the Afghan contract that made it into the film, uh, I believe there were something along the lines of like 17 uh, companies that bid on it, which is actually not that much in my opinion for such a large contract, uh, but about 17 companies who, who submitted all the qualifying, all the necessary materials uh, to qualify them to bid. And out of that, I think there were like like four or five finalists where uh, they thought that they they decided they, that made it into a second round, so to speak. And out of the five, uh, four or five finalists, they ended up choosing us based on the various uh, uh, factors that they calculated, such as reliability, financial performance, uh, um, that get the uh, timelines that we gave them as far as delivery and as well as price what's it like working with arms dealers is it just the same like obviously because it's guns and people think it's a wee bit more dirty but like are they good people to work from when you're starting to source products from all around the world or is it like gangstery kind of feeling where don't put a foot wrong or you could get killed or is it just straight business? So it's, a, it's a real mix. Um, I would say most, the vast majority of people in the industry are just regular business people. Uh, it, most, I mean, it depends on the kind of arms dealing you're doing, of course. Uh, we were dealt, we were just selling to the U.S. government. So 
uh, we were mostly dealing with just large companies and just normal business people. Uh, there were some situations where we felt we were kind of getting into the shadier um, side of the business. And uh, that would be more when we went to uh, Albania and uh, we were purchasing large quantities of ammunition from the Albanians and we had to negotiate some, we wanted to negotiate the prices. And uh, that's when we kind of got into the uh, dark underworld and met with people that seemed like they were part of uh, organized crime. And we found out later in, in the papers through unrelated scandals that they had been arrested for organized crime activities. So we did end up dealing with uh, some people from organized crime, but most of the people that we dealt with were just regular seeming business people. What was your first deal? My first deal that I worked on myself that actually won uh, was for, uh, wasn't even weapons or ammunition, it was for propane. Um, I won a contract to uh, supply 50,000 gallons of propane to the U.S. Air Force in Wyoming. And uh, yeah, I made like a good $8,000 on it. So not too bad for about a, a week and a half of work. Is this just sitting behind a computer or did you have, like in the film, you're all around the world, you're like getting chased and people shooting at you, but is a lawyer just sitting behind a computer, just making deals, buying products and selling them on? The vast majority, I would say like 98% of it is just sitting behind a computer and sending emails and doing research and filling out spreadsheets and, you know, calling people on the phone. Uh, we did travel a bit around, but that was mostly to uh, find new sources of supply. So we would go to these uh, exhibitions, to these arms expos, as they call them. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a, quite a few of them all over the world. We went to a big one in Paris uh, called Euro Satori, and it's, uh, it's an exhibition. So all the major arms companies come and they set up booths and, and go to, uh, 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 to each arms, arms company and, and uh, talk to the their salespeople and make connections and build relationships. And that was, that was interesting. Uh, we went to a few of those, went to one, one in Paris, one in India, uh, Ephraim, I believe went to one in Malaysia. I didn't go to that one. I went to South Africa. So there are a few different, uh, a few different, uh, arms expositions that we went around the world. Uh, and that, that was, that was a lot more interesting than sitting behind a computer, but that was, that was the minority of the time. That was just to make contacts. Uh, the vast majority of the work was sitting behind a computer and talking to people on the phone. See, when you're making a bit of money, you're, you're doing well for yourself. When does it when does it greed kick in, David? Like when do you go? Okay, I'm making legal money, but then you start going to the other side. Right. So for us, when we when we uh, crossed from legal to illegal was. Um, was when we found out that the ammunition that we were going to deliver for the Afghan contract. So just to give your listeners some context, uh, for those who haven't seen the film, um, we won a enormous contract, the biggest contract we'd ever won by far, about 20 times bigger than I think we'd ever won, uh, to supply the Afghan army and police with uh, munitions, with uh, uh, bullets and uh, some larger caliber stuff like tank shells and mortar shells, anti-aircraft rockets. Um, and the idea behind that contract was that the U.S. Army, uh, which had invaded Afghanistan in 2000, 
uh, one after the uh, the September 11th attacks, uh, was going to was trying to build up a democratic country there under Hamid Karzai, and uh, this was in 2007. So uh, President Bush, Bush was still president, and he thought that the next president was going to be a Democrat, which he was right. But Obama became president after him. But he also thought that because the next president would pull out of Afghanistan, he was wrong about that. It took another 13 years for Biden to pull out of Afghanistan. So Bush thought that before he left office, he wanted to to arm the, uh, the government of Afghanistan with enough weapons and uh, munitions to fight off the Taliban for the next 20, 30 years, because uh, he wasn't sure that the United States would be uh, there to support them. So they put out this massive contract, which we ended up winning. It was worth $300 million, the biggest contract, small arms contract in, in history, as far as I'm aware at the time. And um, it was about 30 different items, everything from AK-47 ammo, pistol ammo, even all the way up to anti-aircraft rockets. And uh, one of the the light items, uh, the AK-47 ammo, 7.62 by 39 ammunition, uh, we had sourced in Albania. Um, and uh, we realized after we went over there to inspect it that that ammunition had originally come from China. And our contract said specifically, our contract with the US Army, uh, who was buying the ammo, giving it to the Afghans, um, uh, the U.S. Army put in our contract that we cannot supply any ammunition either directly or indirectly from China. And the reason they put this in the contract was because in 1989, there was the Tiananmen Square massacre in, in China, uh, where a bunch of pro-democracy uh, protesters were killed by the Chinese uh, Communist Party and the Chinese military uh, to suppress that the, the pro-democracy movement. And in order, there's a very famous uh, picture from that time called Tank Man, where there's a Chinese man standing in front of a line of tanks that that picture went around the world and, um, it, and it caused a huge political backlash against the Chinese. And the United States government put an arms embargo against China uh, because of that. Uh, so it's illegal for U.S. citizens and companies to buy or sell military equipment with the Chinese so in our contract, it said no ammunition could be uh, purchased uh, either directly or indirectly from China. Now, if you had bought uh, uh, Chinese ammunition in 1988, before it was illegal, um, and imported into the United States or into another country, uh, and in 1990, it would still be legal to sell that ammunition because you had purchased you had purchased it when it was legal. So the ammunition that was in Albania had been purchased by Albania. It wasn't, it wasn't actually purchased. It was given to the Albanians by the Chinese um, because they had become allies in the 70s. Uh, it, would give it, it was given to them in the 70s. So, um, so it was given to them when the ammunition, when it was still legal to deal with China. So this ammunition should have been legal. But our contract said that we couldn't, it didn't mention the embargo. So it, uh, it just said no Chinese, period. So we weren't 100% sure whether it was legal for us to supply this, this uh, ammunition because it didn't violate the terms of the embargo, but it did violate the terms of our contract with the army. So we, we had a choice pretty much at the time. 
uh, we were thinking, well, we could tell the army about this and say, hey, you know, we know you guys were referring to the arms embargo when you wrote this contract. So uh, can you please just write a waiver a letter that says that we could deliver this? And they could have said, if we had done that, they could have said, uh, sure, you are correct. We didn't mean we only meant to refer to the embargo. So here's a waiver and we could have delivered and would have been no problem. But then we thought, well, another possible reaction they could have if we tell them this is they could say, well, you know, all your competitors bid on this contract with the condition that there would be no Chinese direct or indirect, and that would include this stuff. So it's not fair to to everyone else in the industry that you won this contract while bidding on this Chinese um, sourced ammunition even though it doesn't violate the terms of the embargo, everyone else could have did uh, this this ammunition because that was the terms of the contract. So then they could have taken that $300 million contract away from us and put it out for open bid again. And we thought, you know what? We don't want to risk a $300 million contract. It's safer, uh, in quotes there, uh, <laughs> to um, just not tell the army about it and what we're going to do is we're going to repackage the ammunition into cardboard boxes and get rid of all the Chinese markings so that they won't know that it was originally Chinese. And that was the point where we crossed from legal to illegal. And uh, eventually that bit us in the ass. What are you thinking though when you got that 300 million deal? That How much did you make from that? Is that a 5%? Mate, do you make 10%? Like what, how much do you actually make from the 300 million? Right. So we had bid the contract um, at 9% profit margin. Uh, we figured that everyone else was going to bid it at 10%. And so we wanted to bid it at 9% just in case if someone else had the exact same suppliers that we had. Uh, but Ephraim was a very, very good negotiator. And uh, after we won the contract, he went back to all the suppliers and said, hey, you know, we have the contract now, so now uh, we need you to give us a better price. I know you gave us a good, your what you said was your best price before, but we've got these other suppliers. So if you want this business, you're going to have to give us a better price. And so he negotiated everyone down very aggressively. And uh, by the time he was done, we were averaging about a 20% profit margin on that. So we would have made about $60 million if we had... Uh, uh, delivered the entire contract. What were you doing with your money? Were you partying or were you level-headed? Like, what were you doing? So unfortunately for me, uh, I never actually pulled any money out of the deal because Ephraim insisted on using all the money to finance the contract because we would have to purchase the ammunition from our suppliers then and purchase the air freight, everything in advance and then send it to the government and the government would only pay us about 30 days later. So we needed the money to finance it. So he insisted on using all the money on financing the contract. So I never actually pulled any of the money out of it. I was actually living off my savings at the time, um, all the way till the end. And, uh, once the contract started going well, he decided that, uh, I didn't deserve to be paid anything. And that's when we had our falling out. I told him to go fuck himself, and I left the company. So that's when he turned sour. Then the, the the greed got to him, and then he forgot. 
what it was a business a partnership yeah i mean he said in in his mind he was saying oh you know you're not working he told me he's like it, what of course he only said this once the contract was being delivered and everything was going smoothly we had like three four aircraft landing every week in uh, kabul um uh and uh once everything was going smoothly and and he didn't really need me as much anymore then he's like hey you know I don't feel like you're working uh, hard enough. Uh, you should be working on all these other issues. And I told you know these other contracts that he was chasing because he he was always chasing after more contracts. Even though he won this three hundred million dollar contract, he was still going for a five million dollar contract here, a ten million dollar contract there. And I told him, I'm like, we really should be concentrating on this three hundred million dollar contract. We're going to make a lot more money if we just deliver this. And he, but he wouldn't listen. He was like, oh, it's all money. It's all money. I'm going after everything. You know, we're on a roll now. And uh, so he kept on winning all these other contracts and getting overwhelmed with all this other work. And he was like, well, why don't uh, you know why don't uh, why aren't you helping me deliver these other contracts? And I told him, well, are you going to give me a because you know, we were working on a commission basis only. I wasn't getting paid a salary or anything like that. So I asked him, well, are you going to give me a uh, uh, a commission on those contracts? And he's like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Uh, you, you, you know, I won these contracts myself, so I don't think that uh, you deserve a commission. So I'm like, so then why would I work on it? And he says, well, because if those contracts fail, the entire company could go bankrupt uh, and then your Af the Afghan contract goes down with it. And I'm like, okay, well then give me a percentage of the company and I'll work on everything that the company works. He's like, oh, oh, don't be ridiculous. I don't give a percentage to my company to anybody. So I was like, well, then in that case, I'm not working on it. And he's like, well, in that case, I don't think you deserve to get paid for the Afghan contract either. And I said, well, in that case, I'll see you in court, motherfucker. <laughs> And that was that. How much money was he making, do you think, per month? Oh, per month, it's difficult to say um, because there were so many contracts and he had to make payments and get payments and there was just money coming in and out. I would say that by the time the government shut down the Afghan contract, if I had to put an estimate on it, he probably made a total of about $20 million. So what happened when she's got the contract for 300 million? When they got the contract, you and uh, Ephraim fell out? Uh, well, we fell out after about six months after we won the contract. Because uh, the first six months, it was uh, a lot of work. And um, we were working like 18-hour days, literally doing nothing except work. I would fall asleep on his couch. And you know, as soon as I wake up, I'd be you know, talking on the phone, sending emails, um, working late hours because we were working with, uh, with, uh, companies and people from all over the world, uh, from different time zones that have to be up all these crazy hours. And so it was a lot of work for the first six months and, and we worked on it together. Um, but after about six months, when, when all the issues were worked out and things started going smoothly, that's when, uh, when, uh, he informed me that he didn't feel like I deserved to be paid. And what's going through your mind then? Uh, well, what was going through my mind, my, uh, it was, what was going through my mind was that uh, I had been living off my savings all this time, expecting to get a huge payout. And now it didn't look like I was going to get a huge payout, so I'm kind of screwed. Um, 
it's, and I had my daughter had just been born. I, I have a, uh, I have my daughter had just been born right when we won the contract actually. So I had a child to support and, um, I was extremely, it was one of the most stressful times of my life. How long were you doing that business for? Uh, just under two years, just under two years. Yeah. Still, but you must've had a fucking ball as well. Like even though a lot of stress comes with it, there must've been a lot of, not danger, but it's like thrill seeking, like trying to put these plans together to create big contracts and working with the government. Like it must've been a kind of, it must've been a turn on as well for you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was extremely stressful. Um, it was extremely exciting too, because, uh, there was the possibility of making billions of dollars and being set for life. Um, so there was, it was extremely exciting and, and it was thrilling in the sense that, uh, you know, I was traveling all over the world. I was meeting people at pretty high levels of the government, of the military and not just the U S military, but other mil countries, militaries and, um, and our suppliers. So I was talking to the people who were the real movers and shakers of the, uh, of the government and of the governance and, and military, uh, in the international sea. And, uh, that's not something I ever expected any, the kind of circles I was ever expecting to be in. And, um, so it was, it was exciting. I, I would see that stuff that we would, that we were working on would sometimes make it into the news and, uh, like various battles in Afghanistan that made it into the news. And I was like, oh, they're using our ammunition right there. That's the ammunition that we supplied. <laughs> so that was very interesting. Same, you've got presidents like Obama and Bush who were wars all around the world with them. Like, that must be good for business then. Obviously, guys like Trump came in, he doesn't start a war. Like, he would have been bad for, bad for business, I guess? Well, I mean, it depends on which business. So there is, so the U.S. military is massive, right? And um, it's true that Trump didn't start a war, but the Afghan war continued under him. And I believe that the military budget just expanded under him as well. So it wasn't that they were spending less money on the military. Uh, they were spending just as much money. Um, they didn't start a new war. So he didn't start a new war. So there wasn't like a massive, a huge jump, but there was an increase. Uh, I, I believe that every president has just increased the military budgets in the, ever since World War II, as far as I'm aware. So, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely when a new war comes, happens, then the arms industry, the military industrial complex, uh, sees, uh, uh, a positive business outlook to put it nicely. So you, so you weren't making any money then from Ephraim? Was it just a case of a dream he was selling you and you bought into it? Yeah. I mean, I was making money on paper, but all my money was being funneled back into the business in order to keep the financing going. And so, yeah, I, I, on paper, if he had paid me what we had agreed to, I was making a lot of money, but I didn't get that money actually sent to me. It was just kept to finance the business. So at the end, when he decided not to pay me, that was pretty much everything that I worked on. So... I didn't end up making more or less anything from the business. How do you know there was even any money there from him? Oh, I mean, I had I had access to the bank accounts, uh, to the statements, because I would need to give um, I would need to give uh, uh, various suppliers proof 
what they call proof of funds. So well, when a big supplier, would, uh, when you're talking to them and you say, hey, I want to buy this, that, and the other, they're like, well, show me you have the money to buy all this stuff. And we would need to give them a, uh, a certified letter from the bank that showed how much money we had in our accounts. So I knew that the money was there and I was dealing with directly with the government contracting officers. I knew we were winning these contracts and we were getting paid. I would follow up on payments from the government and I would follow up on making payments to suppliers. So the money was there. It wasn't, it wasn't really, it wasn't a fake thing, uh, but he just kept the money in the government, in the company's accounts and didn't end up paying me. So that's how it went. Because was, was he not already greedy? Was he not always arguing and fighting over like ten dollars and twenty dollars? Oh, yeah. Like was that not a tell a telltale sign that he would do anything for yes, money? absolutely. And uh, in retrospect, I definitely should have. Uh, hindsight's always a wonderful exactly, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they call, as they say. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, in retrospect, I should have known. Of course, I was uh, twenty three years old at the time. And we were childhood friends. And I, in my mind, I was like, there's no way he'd screw me over. I, we've known each other since we were kids. Uh, but yeah, he was always fighting over like, every, like tiny little amounts of money. It's one, one thing that always sticks in my mind uh, was he once called up AT&T, which is the big cell phone service provider in the United States. And um, he spent something like 45 minutes on the phone with them uh, arguing about, I think it was like a five or $6 extra charge on his bill and that he felt like he was charged unfairly. And he, after he spent like, like 30, 40 minutes on the phone with them arguing about this five, $6 bill. Uh, I, I told him like, Effer, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're spending, you're wasting so much time over just a few bucks we could be working on real business and making millions of dollars here. Like, why, why are you doing this? And he goes to me, he's like, it's the matter of principle. Nobody fucks me over. <laughs> so he, he had an emotional, uh, an emotional need to always come out on top, so to speak. And, and I've seen him do this, not just with things like that, but in other business deals where he would screw somebody over like hardcore. I, I once saw him do a, a business deal with someone where he practically ruined the man's business through some sort of like sneaky maneuver and just to uh, make an extra 2% profit margin for himself. And you know, like he, he just didn't really care. It was, it was really more of, of a matter of winning than, than anything. Um, so just to skip ahead a little, but, um, uh, he, when he went, he went to prison for four years and, uh, while he was in prison, he met, uh, a, a man named Matthew Cox, Matt Cox and Matt Cox, uh, wrote his, uh, his, uh, book for him. He wrote a book. He came out with a book called once a gun runner and Matt Cox wrote this book for him. He was like his ghostwriter. And I, I spoke to Matt uh, later that once Matt got out of prison and Matt uh, told me that when he was writing this book, uh, he, you know, and he was telling him all these stories, Matt told Ephraim, he's like, you know, you can't keep on burning every bridge that you come across. Cause like everybody he does business with, he screws over, like literally everybody, it wasn't just me, it was everybody, all his business partners he ended up stealing from or, or, or screwing over in some way. 
And so that tells him, you know, you can't keep on burning your bridges. And Ephraim's response to Matt was, bro, there's a lot of bridges out there. <laughs> he sounds like he, he sounds like a fucker, bro. Yeah, he really is. He's, he sounds he's, he's, he's got <laughs> issues. You know, he's uh, what was your mum and dad saying to it? Did they know? So, well, at the beginning, they they were happy for me because it's I was doing a legal business and seemed like I was doing very well at it. So they were, you know, proud of uh, what I was doing, uh, selling stuff to the U.S. government, and uh, uh, they're they're on the conservative side, so they were they had no problem with uh, support for the military and all that. Um, but uh, uh, of course, once it became a big international news and uh, about the illegal parts of it, they were extremely embarrassed and and uh heartbroken and uh yeah i mean because my name our last name was pretty much dragged through the mud in every major newspaper around the world and uh it was not good for my dad's reputation as a rabbi to say to say the least when did it come on top for you then david like once the relationship broke down you've no money from it when did the, was it the fbi who came looking for you it was actually not the fbi it was uh it was two agencies from the federal government, the Customs Enforcement um, and uh, the DCIS, or the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, which is the Pentagon's internal FBI. So they have their own uh, uh, agency within the Pentagon that investigates Pentagon-related uh, crimes. And so they're the ones who came after us. Of course, nobody's ever heard of them, so they have it as the FBI. <laughs> Basically, the men in black, mate. You're probably yeah. better off the yeah, FBI exactly. after you. <laughs> when did you? When did you know they were coming? Like, did you re realize that it would come crashing down? Because did you not do prison time as well? Seven months. Yeah. So I, Is that I didn't do prison time. I ended up getting sentenced to, to just to house arrest, which is a, a million times better than prison. Uh, get you, you get your own shower, your own toilet, you know, good food, a TV. Um, but your friends could come visit you. You know, it's it's not so bad. Um, but uh, the I found out that it was all gonna kind of collapse. So I so in June of two thousand seven, I it was when I had my falling out with Diberoli, um, uh, Ephraim. Uh, he, uh, he you know when he informed me that he didn't think I deserved to be paid, so I quit and started a lawsuit against him. Um, June of 2007. About two months uh, later, in August of 2007, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, girls who worked in our office called me up and told me that the federal government had raided the office and they were they uh, were taking all the computers and all the the files from the filing cabinets, and so. I realized, well, the federal government raided the office. That means it's serious, and uh, they probably know everything. And it's uh, it's pretty much over. And um, so, of course, I hadn't been working with the company for like two months by that time. And um, uh, they had contacted me, and they said, "Hey, you know, we're uh, looking, we're investigating Ephraim for all these issues." 
um, when you're, they told me you're not really a target of the investigation, but, uh, we would like to ask you some questions. So of course I hired a, an attorney and, um, uh, my attorney said, yeah, just cooperate with them. They're not looking to go after you, um, because you're not even working for the company anymore and you never even got paid. So they don't really care about you. They care about Ephraim. So I was like, okay, fine. Uh, of course, Ephraim wasn't going to, uh, if I had fought them, then they might charge me with something and, and they would really throw the book at me, so to speak. Um, and of course you need a few hundred thousand dollars to really fight the government in court, which I didn't have, uh, because Ephraim had stolen all my, all my money from me. So, um, uh, so I, so I cooperated with the government and they, they didn't do anything for like the next six months and, uh, six months went by, they didn't do anything. And so we thought, well, then maybe they weren't going to charge us with anything. They were just going to let it go. Uh, and then in February of 2008, or maybe it was March, 2008, uh, yeah, it was March. Uh, they, the, the New York times published a front page article about us. They had my and Ephraim's mugshots on the front page. We looked terrible. And it was right next to a picture of a uh, rusty looking ammunition. And they were saying that all the ammunition that we were supplied was, was low quality and we were putting our allies lives in danger. And, uh, which wasn't true. We, we had, there was a very small amount around 30,000 rounds out of like 150 million were rejected for quality reasons. And that was the stuff that they posted on the, uh, the picture of, on the front page of the New York times. Um, uh, but, uh, it caused a very big political backlash and it, this, this, and because we were so young and they had gotten from, I think some other records that we had been, uh, yeah, that we, that we had smoked weed or something. So they called us the stoner arms dealers and in, in the media. And so that became a big story around the world and it became a big political, uh, a scandal. And as soon as that happened about a week later, the uh, the government was like, oh, we're going to charge you with a crime. We uh, we you know we have to. That's like the politics are too uh, too tough right now. So they charged us with uh, conspiracy to commit fraud against the United States for lying about the Chinese. Um, now, what they what came out later in court was that the was that when after customs and DCIS raided our office. Um, they had informed the U.S. Army that the stuff we were delivering was Chinese, and the U.S. Army said, "Well, if you want us to stop taking delivery on it, we need a, a letter from the Attorney General of the United States, uh, the head of the Justice Department, uh, to order us to stop taking a delivery of this ammunition because this ammunition is actually very important for the war effort in Afghanistan." And the Justice Department never supplied this letter. Why? I have no idea. Maybe they just figured it wasn't important enough. It didn't matter. I don't know. But they never gave them that letter. So the U.S. Army kept on taking delivery from AEY, from Ephraim's company, for the next six months, even after they knew it was Chinese. So, of course, once the New York Times published this article and it became a big political scandal, everyone pretended like they didn't know about it and that they were shocked. And uh, then they took the contract away from from Ephraim and charged us with uh, conspiracy to commit fraud. Um, yeah, so so I ended up getting seven months of house arrest uh, because I, you know, we both pled guilty. Ephraim pled guilty as well. 
Ephraim probably would have gotten a lot less than four years, but he ended up committing a second crime while he was awaiting sentencing for the first one. So they had told him not to, you know, once they once he pled guilty, the way it works is you when you plead guilty, you sign a plea agreement with the with the Justice Department. And that agreement, uh, in that agreement, it, you admit to all the things that you did, and the government uh, will say, the Justice Department will say, in in return for you admitting, uh, for pleading guilty and admitting to your crimes, we will ask the judge to give you the minimum possible sentence. Uh, but of course, you may, part of this condition is that you can't commit another crime, because if you commit another crime, then how are we going to tell the judge that you feel really that you're a changed person and that you're, <laughs> you're going to be a good citizen from now on if you commit more crimes? So... Uh, so of course I was scared shitless. I went back to school. I started studying mechanical engineering. I got, I started doing massage therapy again because I needed to make money somehow to support myself and my child. And, um, and, uh, and I, you know, was a very good boy scout, a good citizen. And so they gave me seven months of house arrest, which I was very grateful to, uh, not have to spend prison time, uh, because it, it, they, just, just to give you uh, an idea of how this works, um, before you plead guilty, before I pled guilty, they said that uh, we had delivered 71 aircraft loads of this Chinese origin ammunition to Afghanistan. And in each of these aircrafts, uh, we had signed a document uh, called the Certificate of Conformance, uh, where we stated on this document what was in the aircraft, the type of ammunition, uh, uh, the quantity, and also the place of origin, right? And in the place of origin, we put Albania. And they said, well, you put Albania, but you knew that the original place of origin was China, and you went to Great Lakes to hide the fact that it was from China. So that's an act of fraud that you signed this document knowing it was false. And you did this 71 times because there were 71 aircraft. And so the, we could charge you with 71 acts of fraud. And each of these acts of fraud could get you five years in prison. So you can get 355 years in prison if you fight us. But if you don't fight us, if you plead guilty, then we'll combine those 71 acts of fraud into a single act of fraud. So you can get maximum five years in prison, and we'll ask the judge to give you on the low end because that's a range. The judge, it's up to the judge to give to sentence you. So judge could give you on the high range up to five years or on the low range, maybe nothing. So we'll ask the judge to give you on the low range because you pled guilty. So that was my choice. I was like, okay, if I, if I plead guilty, I can get almost no prison time, maybe nothing, maybe just house arrest. Or I could get 355 years in prison, uh, or uh, you know, 10 years in prison, or you know, who knows, anything in between. And uh, and you know, my daughter was uh, about a year old at the time, and I thought to myself, "There's no way that I'm going to miss uh, watching my daughter grow up." Uh, and you know, so there's no real choice here. I have to plead guilty. And of course, I even if I didn't want to plead guilty. I didn't have a few hundred thousand dollars to take this to court. So there wasn't really much of a choice. So I pled guilty, uh, got very lucky. I feel very grateful that I only got seven months of house arrest. I uh, got to spend a lot of time with my daughter, a lot of time playing guitar, which is what, you know, one of the things I love to do. Um, but Ephraim, after he pled guilty, they told him 
hey, don't do the arms dealing business anymore until you, you know, until after this is all resolved. Of course, he didn't listen to them. He kept on doing the business. And uh, uh, it took you, it was about a three year gap between uh, when we were, uh, when the New York Times article was published and when we finally completed all of the legal issues. Um, there was a three year gap because one of our uh, co defendants, uh, Ralph Merrill, the guy who financed us, uh, he's in the film too. And uh, Ralph, uh, the guy in the film, he's uh, a Jewish uh, laundromat owner. In real life, he was actually Mormon and he owned a machine gun factory. So a little bit different in real life, but his name was Ralph. That part was true. <laughs> and uh, so he he decided to plead innocent. He was going to decide to fight them in court. And so there was a whole trial and they, you know, they, we were required to testify in the trial. So that stretched everything out to about three years. And during this time, Ephraim kept on doing the business because he just couldn't stay out of it. And uh, he offered a, uh, uh, I think it was for magazines, uh, uh, for gun magazines, uh, to some gun dealer in Central Florida. He wanted to do this deal with this guy. And this guy, of course, Googled him and realized who he was. And I assume but thought that this that Ephraim is trying to entrap him into doing something illegal to try to get something his own sentence uh, reduced. And so this gun dealer that Ephraim contacted you know, thought to himself, there's no way I'm going to get in traps. So he calls the ATF, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms Administration. It's like the, the FBI for guns and tobacco and firearms. They, they combine that here. And, um, and uh, he told them who had contacted him and the ATF told this guy, well, that's very interesting. Why don't you keep on talking to him? And why don't you introduce one of our undercover agents as your business partner? which is what he did. The undercover ATF agent told Ephraim, hey, you know, we can do this business deal, but you have to come up to Orlando to uh, to do this deal. We need, I need to shake your hand and look you in the eye and meet you in person in order to do this business. And Ephraim was like, sure, no problem. I'll go do that. He wasn't allowed to actually legally leave South Florida. He wasn't allowed to go there. Uh, part of his plea agreement was he was not allowed to leave the South Florida area. So he uh, violated his plea agreement drove up to central Florida and uh, met the undercover ATF agent. And um, the ATF agent tells him, hey, you know, I know you like guns. Check out this new H HK uh, handgun I got. Uh, this is the latest thing on the market. This is super cool. And Ephraim's like, oh, that's super cool. I love that. I've been reading about that. I want to go. He grabs the gun, you know, from the ATF and he's like, let's go to the range. You know, what can I say? This is, uh, this is so cool. I want to, I've been wanting to shoot one of these guns for a while. And, you know, what can I say? Uh, once a gun runner, always a gun runner, huh? And then <laughs> the ATF agent slaps cuffs on him and says, you're under arrest. You're a felon in possession of a firearm. Because in the United States, it's illegal for someone who has a felony on their record to be in possession of a firearm. So he had already pled guilty to the fraud uh, charge. So he was officially a felon and he was not allowed to be handling this gun. And he could get, uh, he was, could have gotten up to 10 years in prison for that gun charge plus five years for the fraud charge. So he could have gotten 15 years total, but he hired the best lawyers in Miami, uh, spent millions and uh, got his sentence uh, uh, reduced to uh, four years. He ended up serving like three and a half or three and change. 
and now he's out. As far as I know, he's uh, back in, he's still living in Miami. And I think he's, uh, his current business is he, uh, from what I've heard, is he funds lawsuits because so many people have sued him and he sued so many people that he's very well versed in the lawsuit system of the United States. And so he funds, uh, he finances lawsuits. And that's his current business, from what I've heard. What was it like seeing him at court? Was it weird after the fallout? Yeah. There's a lot of bitterness there. I mean, the last time I saw him was because I sued him for the money he owed me. And uh, we had a, uh, like a deposition uh, where, uh, you know, you get together with your lawyers and you, you, you get to ask each other questions under oath. And, um, and that so that was weird. I mean, he came in acting as if he was my friend, smiling, wanting to shake my hand. I told him, like, we're not friends. You know, why I'm suing you for millions of dollars. Don't pretend like you're my friend, you know. Um, but you know, that's just him. He he thinks he can manipulate people by by, you know, just doing these kinds of things. Do you think you were manipulate maybe not groomed but manipulated for that lifestyle that he was promising you the lavish lifestyle the millionaire that do you ever think that he was had any intentions of giving you any money uh in retrospect in hindsight probably not uh because i wasn't the only person he screwed over he pretty much as i mentioned before he screwed over more or less every person that he did business with so after I left, he replaced me with a guy named Danny. He screwed him over. You know, then he then after that guy left, he had someone else work for him. He screwed him over too. He stole all of Ralph's money. Ralph, the investor who financed the whole operation, uh, lost almost all of his money uh, because Ephraim uh, screwed him over as well. So, you know, I mean, I was, I guess, one of the first people who was close to him that he screwed over. Uh, uh, but, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess in, in my mind, I thought, yeah, he's a real tough negotiator, but he wouldn't screw over his best friend. Right. And that was very, very wrong about that. Obviously, um, whether he had planned it in the first place, I'll never know. Like, I don't know if, if he was planning on paying me first, but then changed his mind later because the greed got to him or whether he had it in his mind that he was never going to pay me from the beginning. I have no idea. No, I believe either way. Yeah, see, especially at 23, it's still young. You're naive. That We always think we know everything at that age, but we really know fuck all. Very but true. A man yeah. like him on the phone for 45 minutes arguing over $6 kind of tells you that... <laughs> He's not going to pay out millions. But again, if you're a good guy and being raised right and you think he's my friend, I'm working for him, I'm the last person he's going to screw over that. See, after the court cases and everything settles down, that how hard was it to go back into normal life? Well, well, it was one of the most stressful times of my life. Um, uh, leading up to that, that period uh, uh, when I wasn't sure what was going to happen with the legal issues. Cause I thought uh, yeah, for three years, I thought there was a good chance I might spend years and years in prison. And so that was extremely, extremely stressful. Um, it did make me appreciate, uh, my freedom very much. And, you know, just being able to walk down the street and go to, uh, to a grocery store and, you know, go visit your friend and see your family. It, it takes on a whole other meaning when you think that in a couple of years, you or in a year or two, you know, you may not 
be able to do any of those things for a very long time. So you, you appreciate the little things a lot more. Um, once it was all over, I was extremely relieved and grateful it hadn't been way worse. And, uh, I, and I, I feel very, very lucky that, that, uh, my house arrest actually ended up leading directly into, uh, my current business, uh, as an adventure. It gave me the ideas to, uh, to, uh, invent things. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you the, the story of how that happened while I was under house arrest, I, um, was playing a lot of guitar, as I mentioned. I play, I've been playing guitar since I was a teenager. And of course, I had nothing to do. So I was entertaining myself playing a lot of guitar. And one of the things I really missed was playing with other musicians um, because I couldn't leave my house, I, especially playing with a drummer because the drums the, uh, give the beat to the music and people dance to the beat because the beat is the energy in the music. So I really miss playing with drummers. And of course, a drummer has huge amounts of equipment, so couldn't bring his drum set over my house and I couldn't leave my house to go to the studio. So I couldn't play with the drummer. And so I bought a, a drum machine, which is an electronic device uh, that makes beats. It goes on the table and uh, it has a lot of buttons. Each button makes different drum sound. You can make beats on this and play it back in a loop and, and play your guitar to it. But every time I wanted to change the beat, I had to stop playing my guitar and press a button on the drum machine and to change the beat and then go back to playing my guitar. It interrupted the flow of the music. And I thought to myself, this is really annoying. I wish I had a drum machine that I could change the beat hands-free, like a little pedal on the floor. And um, I went online. I was sure someone already made something like this. I went online to try to buy it, but I couldn't find anything like that. And I asked my musician friends if they'd seen anything like that. And they said, no, but let me know if you find it because that sounds super cool. I want one too. And um, and so then I thought, well, if nobody's making this and everybody wants it, this is a great opportunity. And so to make a, a very long story short, it took me three years, but eventually I created something called the Beat Buddy, like your bunny that plays the beat. It's actually the posters right behind my head right there. Beat Buddy. I don't know if you could see it on the camera. But uh, yeah, 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 I can see it. Yeah, it's also right here. This is this is my first baby, Beat Buddy. As you see, it's a pedal. You could press it, and when you press it, it does uh, it it plays the beat. That that little visual thing. Uh, of course, you can't hear it; it's not plugged in. But when you tap the pedal, it does a drum fill. If you hold it down, it does a transition. You let go, and it goes to the other beat, like from verse to chorus. So you could control what the beat does uh, hands-free with just a tap of your foot. Um, and so that was my first invention. I launched my company, Singular Sound, and uh, it's done did very, very well. Uh, we've come out with six other musical-related products since then. They've done very well. And, um, uh, and recently, I just launched a new company uh, that's our first product that is not music-related first uh, uh, general market product that I'm really excited about. It's called the InstaFloss, like Instagram, but flossing. And it's a machine that flosses all your teeth for you in 10 seconds. It uh, uses uh, 12 water jets and you just, here I'll show you, it's actually, so this is this is the InstaFloss right here. It has the water jets come out here and shoot towards your teeth, both top and bottom. And all you have to do, this pivots, and all you have to do is put it in your mouth like this, and you go like that, and it shoots the water jets at the top of your teeth, the bottom, the outside, and the inside. 
uh, and it gets gives you a perfect floss in just 10 seconds. So you go to instafloss.com, you can check out how it works. Now, we're going to deliver in around April, our first production run, and we've already sold more than 25,000 of these as pre-orders. So this, everyone's really excited about it, and uh, I think it's going to do really, really well. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That I would buy that because like, I, I hate floss, and yeah, every time I floss, everybody I, hates I flossing. get blood. Or, and I, I don't bother my ass actually doing it. Like, but it's scary, man. Like, you've clearly got that genius in you to then create anything you put your mind to. Oh, but you. then you went into the arms dealing game. But <laughs> that's only probably made you stronger. Potentially going to get three hundred years in prison. Let your family down. Do you now feel because then you'd have felt like a failure? You're a father. You've no money. You've got the police after you. You could potentially spend your life in prison. Like, how does it feel good now to actually making an honest living? You were trying to make an honest living at some point, but now do you feel like a man? Do you feel like a father? Do you feel like a good son now? Yes. I feel very proud of where I am today. Um, I feel uh, like I'm actually making, uh, doing good in the world. I am making products that people enjoy and that provides value to people, makes them happy. Uh, on the music music side, I've gotten many letters uh, from people who who thank me for my products. That that I one of my favorite letters um, was a seventy year old man who said that he hadn't picked up a guitar in thirty years and that the Beat Buddy inspired him to start playing again because it was finally. Uh, it was finally some like a drummer that he could rely on. That's what he said. And that I brought music back into his life. And it was one of like the few joys he had left in life. And so that was very, very touching and, and uh, made me really feel like I was um, like doing good in the world. And, uh, and I'm even more excited about the Insta floss because I mean, Flossing is something everyone hates, but it's actually really important medically. Uh, one of the uh, biggest sources of disease is when people don't take care of their oral hygiene, it becomes a vector for disease because it, when you have uh, sores in your mouth, uh, you, your mouth is open to the outside world. So bacteria and viruses could infect you through uh, unhealthy gums. And so one of the biggest sources of actual of, of heart disease uh, comes from people not taking care of their oral health. So being able to make something that makes flossing easier and more effective is something that I'm really excited about, not just from a business perspective, though I am very excited uh, from the business potential of it. I do think it will be a, a much more successful than my musical products ever could be just because it's a general market. Uh, but I think that it will it will improve many, many people's lives uh, to a to a significant extent. And, and that makes me feel really good about the work I'm doing much, much more than uh, than the arms be dealing business ever did. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Does that make it I'm no doubt it's going to be a world world smash brother but does that make it easier when you if you're selling guns grenades bazookas jet planes like lives are getting destroyed with that and you're do you feel part of that as well is that why you're trying to rectify it now or is that just a case that was business back in the yeah, day so there it's i have mixed feelings about that um people i've gotten a lot of hate online 
you know, I, I read, I read people's comments, uh, I, not all of them, of course, but uh, most, I try to read everything that is written about me just to see what people think and, and to respond to people. And I've gotten a lot of hate online, uh, that I was, uh, you know, supplying weapons and ammunition and, and causing a lot of people's deaths and misery and destruction and all that. And I could see that, um, there's also the counter argument to that, that it was also helping people defend themselves. And uh, it's definitely a, not a black and white area. The people we were supplying uh, weapons and ammunition to were the people fighting the Taliban. And I don't feel bad about that, uh, helping people fight the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban are extremely repressive group of, of ideologues of, uh, uh, you know, and they, they, uh, have horrible human rights records and, and terrible to women and just uh, really dragging Afghanistan back to the Middle Ages. So the people fighting them, I believe, should be supported. And uh, yes, a gun can be used to kill someone, but it could also be used to keep yourself from getting killed. So uh, giving people the tools to defend themselves, I don't think is a bad thing. I don't, I would not feel bad about supplying the Ukrainians right now with the means to defend themselves. People who get attacked should be supported. So uh, I don't think that, I don't agree with uh, some people's characterizations that all arms dealers are just automatically evil. That is not true. I think it depends who you're supplying uh, weapons and ammunition. Now, I will admit that it is a great area and that sometimes the people who you thought were the good guys turn out not to be so good or they start as the good guys and then they become the bad guys. So it's there's always that risk of that happening. Uh, and are you do you bear responsibility when that happens? It's a philosophical question and, and I don't don't think that there's any real clear-cut answers to that. Yeah. So going through everything and then you've kind of come through court, but then War Dogs gets made 2016, 2017. Did that bring back a whole lot of emotion or could you enjoy it more because you knew it was all finished with and it was just something more productive? I hit both, I would say. Um, it, the process of making the movie, uh, so the way they did it was uh, Stephen Shin, the screenwriter of the film, came to Miami for a few weeks and interviewed me pretty intensively and asked me to give him all the stories. And he based the, um, the, uh, screenplay off that. And so that process was a bit painful because it was, uh, you know, really digging in to that entire experience and, and all the unpleasantness that came along with that. Um, but seeing the film on screen i thought was amazing it was pretty cool you know like I, yeah i see miles teller and he's like my name is david packhouse and i'm an international arms dealer and i was like man i look fucking badass <laughs> so i was like that's pretty cool i mean it was really weird to you know to for someone else to be using my name and uh really weird to see myself on the big screen with an amazing head of hair you know only hollywood can do that right giving me a, a beautiful head of hair uh, for the people who aren't watching this in video format, uh, balls. So, <laughs> um, so uh, uh, yeah, that that was it was very surreal. I never in my life expected for a Hollywood film to be made about me. Uh, it was very very strange, but uh, but pretty cool. I, I have to say that I was very satisfied with how the movie came out. I, I won't 
you know, I won't say that it was 100% accurate. It wasn't. But um, but I thought they got most of the story right. They got the broad strokes correct. Because mm-hmm. Todd Phillips, he'd done The Hangover. He'd then done your film and then he'd done The Joker. He's went comedy. Yours was kind of comedy drama. And then he's went full fucking dark with The Joker. World-class director. Do you feel as if they'd done the, the, the film justice then? Because what a lineup. You had Bradley Cooper. You had Jonah Hill. You had the kid in Top Gun who played Jula. What's his name Miles again? Miles Teller. Uh, Tyler, Miles, Miles, like, what yeah, an actor. Miles Teller, yeah. That was the kind of start of his career. Like, and then he's just done one of the biggest gross films of all time, yeah. Top Gun. Like, see, when you see him in films now, does it make you go, he's played yeah, me? Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, was that like, see, putting, because your mum and dad probably, would they have already knew everything with Coat? Anyway, so when the film came out, you weren't sitting nervous that kind of untold stories were, were there, if you know well, what I mean? you know, the funny thing is, is that my mother refuses to watch the film. She still hasn't seen it. Yeah. Uh, she's like, the, what she says, she's like, I know my son. I don't need Hollywood to watch Holly, what Hollywood says about him. You know, she refuses. My dad did watch the film and he loved it. Uh, there was one part he did like. But uh, he liked he like he thought it was super cool. His friends thought it was very cool that his son had a movie made about him. There was one part of the film that I thought was really funny that he found upsetting. Uh, there is this part of the film where um, Jonah Hill, who's playing Ephraim, uh, is talking to Miles Teller, who's playing me, and uh, it, uh, Jonah. It, this is in the beginning of the film where where they meet at the uh, at the funeral for the first time, and in in the film. Uh, uh, Jonah Hill is like, uh, oh, you know, uh, I had to, I had to come to this funeral to to find you because your mom wouldn't give me your number, and and Miles Teller goes to him, what you were talking to my mom, and Jonah Hill goes, yeah, man, I was fucking her, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and my dad goes. Yeah, that wasn't such a funny joke. That wasn't. That was not funny. <laughs> uh, how much did that? How much did that follow him Then did that then change your life as well? With did it open more doors for you? Uh, you know, not as much as I thought it would. Um, but uh, but it did a little bit. Uh, it's it's. I've met you know cool people because of the film, but it, it hasn't. I wouldn't say it significantly changed my life. Uh, I've been invited to, you know, give speeches in various places. Uh, uh, I had one, uh, I think it was uh, an NGO from in Washington, D.C. asked me to to do an interview for them about the arms business. Um, I've been invited to various uh, film uh, uh, enthusiasts events. Uh, people who want to meet the real people behind the film. So that's cool. I got to travel a bit, got to meet cool people, but I, it didn't change my career that much. To be honest, like I thought like, oh, wow, there's a Hollywood film made about me. My products, you know, I'm going to become famous and my products are going to get like a lot of exposure. It didn't end up actually making that much of a difference to my business. Um, uh, people who look me up, it, I mean, I guess because most of this time I've been in the music business and that's kind of a niche business. Only maybe 10% of people are musicians who would be interested in my product. So uh, it didn't really make that big of a difference. Uh, But uh, it did get me on podcasts like yours. And now that I am doing a product like Instafloss, 
uh, it's actually is making a significant business uh, difference to uh, to Istafloss. People who hear about Istafloss uh, seem to be really excited about it. And we've seen significant sales uh, jumps when I do these podcasts, which is why I'm on this podcast now. So having, yeah, good on, yeah, yeah. So having a good story to uh, to get on these podcasts is is making a difference to that business now. Yeah, this is what it's all about. It's all about business. Like we create a good story, create good views, and then you're plugging your business. That it's a win-win for everybody. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Like, so you've got to kind of be thankful from the past yeah. and. Going forward for the future, David, obviously you've got your inventions, you've got then the, the blast and the teeth, what's it called? In, Insta floss, like flossing. Insta flossed. Yeah, Insta and where floss. can people buy all your products? Um, Have you got a website yes. or is it all different websites? Yeah, so instafloss.com. It's like Instagram, but flossing. Instafloss.com. You could uh, order the Instafloss, which uh, is it's a pre-order right now. We have, we're in the middle of manufacturing the first production run. So that will be delivered in April. Uh, for my musical products, uh, it's you can go to singularsound.com. Here, I'll hold up the, uh, I don't know if you can see it clearly. There we go. Sing, singular, yep. Yep. Singularsound.com, S-I-N-G-U-L-A-R, sound.com. And uh, you can see all the products that, uh, that we've made there. It's not just the hands-free drum machine, uh, which is the Beat Buddy, but also made the world's most advanced looper pedal. Musicians know what I'm talking about. It uh, records um, music in a loop that you can make different layers. And we've made the world's most advanced looper pedal, as well as MIDI controller and a way to control your cables. And so we've got quite a, like around six products that are all innovative, uh, all centered on musicians. And you can find that at singularsound.com. Yeah, good on you, brother. Plans for the future, David? I've got a few other inventions in the pipeline, a few mus more musical inventions, a few more dental hygiene inventions, a few inventions that are uh, in neither of those categories. I've actually got a, a spreadsheet of about 30 different ideas, so uh, I don't think I'll ever run out of ideas. Uh, I, I just love ideas. I love brainstorming and coming up with things, and um, I'm just going to keep on... Uh, making things that I think are awesome and that people think are awesome. And that's, that's my plans for the future. Good on you, brother. What sort, just before we finish up, what are sort of weapons were you selling? What, what, what was the one thing that you stood out and think, wow, like, why, why is that? Like, <laughs> what was the, the biggest thing you'd sold? The biggest thing I sold, um, I thought anti-aircraft rockets were pretty cool. Uh, definitely the most sophisticated thing we were selling. We sold uh, some heavy machine guns as well, which is a pretty intense weapon. And you know, they're pretty big and heavy. And, uh, so that that was uh, pretty cool too. And the thing that I thought kind of blew my mind was um, uh, I saw some contracts out for nuclear weapons. <laughs> but of course, those are sole source contracts. They don't they don't uh they i think raytheon is the company that makes those so uh obviously we couldn't bid on them but uh but it was just crazy to see it public out there on the website david listen for coming on today and telling your story brother i thoroughly enjoyed that it's My clear pleasure. that you're on a right path now in life you're doing well so keep going would you like to finish up on anything uh yeah we are still uh we're actually going to be raising money uh at, from investors for instafloss so anyone who is interested in joining us on the business side um, can sign up for our mailing list and uh, we're about to launch a crowdfunding campaign uh, for that. 
Uh, so, so that's, uh, so you got, we can, anyone who would like to be, can be, uh, my business partner in that venture. Well, where can people contact you? Email, Instagram, yeah, so like, what's your contact details? My Instagram is at David Packhouse, just my name, those spaces. Uh, that's my Instagram and people can contact me there. Um, I will tell everyone right away that if, if they're contacting me to ask them to tutor them and how to be an arms dealer, I will probably, <laughs> which I get a lot. I get hundreds of these requests. Um, I I'll probably just send you a link where you can educate yourself about that. And I would also recommend reading the war dogs book. If you're really interested uh, in the full story, there's a, a book that was written by a journalist uh, named Guy Lawson. Uh, he, who worked for Rolling Stone. And he, and I would say that's the most accurate version of the story and the most detailed version of the story. Uh, it's just look on Amazon. It's called War Dogs, just like the film, but it's a book. And so that would give you the most details as far as the actual uh, arms dealing story. And uh, yeah, and uh, I'm on Twitter, same handle, uh, Instagram. Um, I have a YouTube channel, all the same, David Packhouse. And so, uh, that's where you can find me. David, listen, I wish you all the best for the future, brother. Thank you, James. Stay in touch and good luck with everything. Take care, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.